I'm so thankful to share with you today someone that many of you know very well. Paul Wallace has been on staff here as our pastor of adult education for three and a half years. And I just am so thankful, Paul, for you and for our friendship, for the times we get to enjoy together. Today, we have the great gift of getting to hear from Paul as we go back and forth with this theme, the elegance of faith and science. Now, some of you who know Paul may not know all the details of his professional career, and those of you that don't know Paul, uh, this is a good word for him and for you. Paul Wallace teaches physics and astronomy at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. He holds a PhD in physics from Duke University and an MDiv from Emory University's Candler School of Theology. In addition to Agnes Scott, Paul has taught at Hampton Sydney College, Berry College, Candler, and Columbia Theological Seminary, and First Baptist Church of Decatur. <laughs> For three years, he was a NASA faculty fellow at Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, and has twice served on the faculty of the Emory Tibet Science Institute in Dharamsala. Dharamsala. Dharmasala, India. Until recently, he served as pastor for adult education at First Baptist Church of Decatur, which he loved and still loves. An avid birder, he lives in Decatur with his family. It's all true. It's all true. Every bit of it. There's one thing that is not in here, though, which is also true, and that is Paul discovered a particular type of galaxy way off in the universe which he got to participate in naming, say the name. Oh, yeah, you're going to strap in. It's, um, let me just preface this by saying some sub-branches of astronomy, you can actually name the thing you discover. I didn't have that freedom in my particular sub-branch of astronomy. Didn't have that freedom. So the name was chosen for me, and the name was... 3EGJ2006 plus 2321. I can say it again. But what would really have been cool is if it could have just been named Paul Wallace. <laughs> and I speculated in Fresh Start this morning, what would it have been like, what would it be like to just be looking at a telescope and say, I'm going to take a quick gander at that Paul Wallace galaxy. <laughs> How cool would that be? <laughs> That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you are here today to talk about the elegance of faith in science. And part of what can usher us into this, Jan did a, a great job of reading Psalm 33 that talked about God's creation of the universe. And Psalm 19 we refer to, but this, this idea that, that you have referenced as the book of creation, Psalm 19 actually says, the heavens declare the glory of of God and the firmaments, his righteousness. So talk to us to start out with about this, this book of creation that is both the book that we know as the scriptures and something bigger. When many of you knew my dad, uh, he passed away a number of years ago, but he was a professor at Georgia Tech and I grew up around here, very close to here in Tucker. And uh, so dad had some books laying around the house 
and uh, one of them in 1980, this book called uh, Cosmos by Carl Sagan came out, and Dad had this book at home. Uh, first printing right there. Yeah, I've, still, I've got it in my office today. Anyway, so I, 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 as a 12-year-old uh, curious kid, I opened this book up, and it really changed the way I saw the world as far as understanding the size, scale, age of the cosmos. And there was this nice timeline in there that talked about you know all the eras and epics and this sort of thing of past time and just how far back time went. You know, I learned that the dinosaurs were actually pretty recent additions, you know, on the big picture, very recent additions to the cosmos. And um, it really uh, got me, my imagination, shall we say, got uh, lit up. But then uh, my dad was also a member of uh, Baptist Church in Atlanta and not this one, another one. And uh, we went there a lot. And uh, at that place, they gave me another book um, that also had a timeline in it up front, but it was only six days long, you know. And so I began to wonder about these two books, right? You got the book of scripture over here. I got the Bible. We have Carl Sagan's Cosmos and a bunch of other science books I haven't mentioned that were also laying about the house. And so I began to read them, and I discovered there were no mass extinctions, you know, no evolution mentioned in the Bible, and also in the uh, book Cosmos and other natural history books, uh, Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. So I got this, this, uh, this problem presented to me at a fairly young age, and I've been sort of thinking about it ever since. Uh, but what I didn't know at the time that I know now is that this is something that Christians have been talking about for centuries. Okay, it's an old problem. And one, one of the ways that it's been posed historically is uh, the idea of two books. You've got the book of uh, Scripture, you know, the Bible. And then on the other hand, you've got the book of creation. Not so much a book, not Carl Sagan's Cosmos, but uh, the book of creation written all around us. In the trees, the sky, water, you know, that's the book of creation. And both are inspired by God. Both are, uh, both can be read. And uh, so when I was presented this problem, uh, there's really, I guess, you can think of it as that you have two options. You can either say, well, these things don't agree, therefore I've got to take one and throw it out and keep the other. That's one possible. But... Uh, you know, you can sort of, or you can decide, I'm going to uh, look beneath the surface of the language in the Bible. I'm going to look beneath the surface of the world around me. I'm going to do a little more digging and see if that's a fruitful enterprise or not. Find out, does it lead to a sort of an intellectual cul-de-sac or does it open up brand new questions and is it a fruitful conversation? And my experience in my life has been the latter. If you dig deep enough and you spend a little time ask questions, uh, you can learn a whole lot. There's a lot to be said about this discussion between the two. And um, it's often posed as a conflict in the press. You know, conflict gets clicks, it gets eyes on the page. Uh, but uh, I, I have gone the other way. Uh, I believe there's a deeper reconciliation between, that can be made between the two, which is mutually illuminating. So that's well, it's a, good, it's a good segue into saying, speaking of books, you have three? Three. And love and... Four, four, actually, but... 
three. Okay. Three for us. Three that I have. Three that we have here yes, in the room. Okay. Yes. And, and Love and Quasars really touches on a lot of what you mm-hmm. just mentioned. And, and you actually have copies here. For, I have a few. Yes. For anybody, if you've not gotten those, or of course online you can order. But uh, great reconciliation. In fact, the, the subtitle, Love and Quasars is the title. Subtitle, An Astrophysicist Reconciles Faith in Science. And by the way, I love the, the word astrophysicist, and I like to say Paul Wallace is my favorite astrophysicist. He says that every time he introduces me to anybody. Yes, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I only know one astrophysicist, but you are my favorite. And the other book is 35 Questions Christians Ask Scientists. And this I also recommend. This is the latest book that has been put out. Some of you subscribe to Nurturing Faith. It's one of our Baptist publications. And for the last six years, Paul has been writing each month a column entitled Christians Ask Scientists, and he is the responder to these great questions with terrific responses. So the book is a compilation of 35 of those responses to questions, and so much of what we're going to cover today are covered in these. The other book is The Stars Beneath Us, that was your first book that we have access to. So um, let's talk some more now about this whole business of the tension between science and faith, faith and science. It wasn't always so. There was no. this, this uh, originally Christians, uh, the Jewish community, Christian community, uh, this was not a problem at all. What began to be a problem was this sense of questioning what Christians had always assumed to be true, and that is the earth was the center of the universe. Right. And suddenly this guy named Copernicus comes on and starts asking hard questions and postulating some controversial stuff. Then another super controversial guy named Galileo began to try to prove this stuff. And then your favorite, uh, what would become astronomer, uh, Johannes Kepler. So let's let's let you kind of talk about the, the journey that really began to create some of these questions and now some answers that we've got. That well, back in uh, the 16th century, um, science uh, was not really what we call it. It was not, didn't exist in the form that we think of it now. The people who are mostly responsible for turning it into what we know now, uh, the number one person responsible for it is Galileo, whom you've all heard of. Um, But before him, several decades before him, came a fellow named Copernicus, and Copernicus was not the first person in the world to say that the earth goes around the sun. Uh, The number of ancient Greeks have had said the same thing. But he was the first one to make it uh, believable uh, in in, in sort of in more contemporary times. In, In 1500s, Shortly after the Protestant Reformation, as the Protestant Reformation was ramping up, uh, he did make it pretty believable. He made it mathematically plausible to believe that the sun is in the middle of the solar system and the earth goes around it. Now, you and me, we learn this stuff when we're in third grade, and we don't appreciate the radical nature of it. But ask yourself this. What evidence do you have, dear church, that the earth's going around the sun or that the earth is in motion at all? The answer 
I bet, is that none of you have any, any evidence whatsoever of that. There's no logical argument. There's no evidence of your senses. Uh, you believe it because somebody you trusted told you it was true. Maybe your third grade teacher. But back 500 years ago, this was a radical idea that the earth was in motion. And Copernicus put this book together and then he sat on it for 30 years. He didn't publish it. It was not published until, until Copernicus was literally on his deathbed because he recognized he was, he was a cleric. Let me put it this way. He, he worked for the church, okay? He, he, he was a cleric. He worked for the church, but he realized what a potential bomb this would be. And I want to emphasize to you that the main thing he was worried about was not the church. Uh, and the main trouble that initially that Galileo got in was not the church. It was the academy. It was the universities. It was the professors. Because they were all in love with Aristotle. And Copernicus's theory flew in the face not only of the theology of the day, but of the philosophy of the day. And so he got it, he never published it until right before he was, he, he died. But the church handled it for many years with a great amount of equanimity. This, they took it, they said, well, this is an interesting theory. Let's wait and see if it's true. So for 70 years, there was no issue at all. The church didn't ban the book. It could be found in libraries across Europe. It was fine. Galileo, he, he was a brilliant scientist, and we may not have an observer, somebody who could observe the natural world as, as well as he did uh, for 200 years after him. Nobody came close. He was a brilliant observer. He was a brilliant speaker. He could convince any group of anything. He was a genius when it came to rhetoric. And he also uh, had a, a tremendous inability to read the room. <laughs> he had an inability to understand the political consequences of what he did. And so there were a lot of things that got science and religion opposed to each other. A lot of things besides Galileo. But Galileo's personality was at least as much to blame for what came after and for this antagonism between the two as the church and the choices it made. I'm not saying the church had nothing to do with it. The church had made its own mistakes. But what is oftentimes not understood is that Galileo himself and his own personality was one of the things that set this thing off in an oppositional way. It's a complicated story. And there's many other aspects to it, including the politics of the day and some choices made by some of the people around Galileo. But anyway, all this to say, that it is my belief that it is not a necessary conflict. It is definitely, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not here to say there's no difference in the two. There's a huge difference in the two. But I'm also here to say that the conflict that we have come across and that you might have read about in the papers um, is not necessary. Historically, it's not necessary. So the elegance of faith and science. Galileo was onto something. He had the whole telescope thing, 
He but, was definitely on to something. But, I mean, the, he, but this is an important lesson for all of us. Personality matters. Mm-hmm. If you've got something controversial to say, be nice. Is one lesson. Or at least be politically astute. Be politically astute. Read the room. But it's Kepler, Johannes Kepler, really, that becomes the hero in this journey because the church clamped down on Galileo in part because of right. the fact that he was troublesome. Yes. He made some bad choices, let's put it that way. But then Kepler comes along. This guy on the screen, his name was Johannes Kepler, was Johannes Kepler. Um, he's one of my favorite uh, people in history. And uh, he wanted to be a theologian. He wanted to be a minister. He was a Lutheran. That is to say, he was a Protestant. And at this time, Europe was in the middle of the Thirty Years' War. I don't know if you know what that is, but basically it was a religious war that pitted the Protestants against the Catholics all across Europe. And it was ugly. And in times like this, theology... You, you have to fit within your, your, your tribe. You have to fit within your group. You, there, there's draw, there's sharp lines drawn between groups of people. And Kepler wanted to grow up and be a minister, to be a pastor, to be a theologian. That's what he wanted most of all. But his theology didn't quite fit in these little boxes that were prescribed at the time. And the way people got jobs then, they didn't, you know, for faculty positions, they didn't do a national search. The way people got jobs then was that the people who were professors and senior professors recommended people for jobs. And it was just, you know, here, here's a person for that job. Here's my student. He's great for that. Go and do that. And none of these professors wanted Kepler to be a theologian because his theology was, shall we say, unorthodox. Controversial. Controversial. So they said, I tell you what, Kepler, why don't you just go be a math teacher? Okay, he didn't want that. That was a, that was a number of steps down the ladder of, of prestige in the university at the time to be a math person. But it turns out Kepler was a brilliant math person, like head and shoulders above virtually anybody else in Europe at the time. Uh, and I, looking back on what he did now today, I cannot believe what he was able to do. But what I want to share with you is this. He wanted to be a theologian. He wanted to be a minister. He wanted to spend his days studying God. But instead, he had to do math. But what he came to understand was this. I wanted to become a minister and theologian. For a long time, he was restless. That is to say, he was unhappy. Now, however, behold how God is being celebrated in my work in astronomy. And he goes on in this letter. He's actually writing this letter to his sort of his uh, professor, his, his main mentor. Uh, he goes on to talk about how he thought that to be righteous, to be a good Christian meant being a pastor, meant being inside of a church talking explicitly about God, worshiping. But what he came to understand was that God could be worshiped and praised through scientific work. He understood what he was doing to be in his research, 
and his research was phenomenal. <laughs> and it was, he was very lonely. The work he was doing, he was out on this limb, this intellectual limb that nobody else had even thought about going out on. And he was far out on it, but he was right. And he claimed that his work was worship and that what he was trying to do was to think God's thoughts after God. He saw himself and he saw his role as a scientist, as somebody who was investigating God by investigating God's creation. He loved God with the intellectual love of God by studying God's creation. And that's what he understood himself to be doing. So that's why I love Kepler. Yeah. And the gift that he gave us was actually proving what Kepler and Galileo postulated. Right. But he proved the elliptical orbit right. of he, the Earth rim. His work, what you may not know about Galileo is that Galileo never proved anything about the Earth going around the sun. Never, and the church knew it. There's subtleties here. Church knew Galileo never proved anything. And Kepler knew it. But Kepler's work was sufficient to prove that the earth went around the sun. And also, he was the first one to say, he was the one who said that uh, the shape of planetary orbits is not circular, but elliptical, sort of oval-shaped, okay? Which doesn't sound too exciting to you, maybe, but at the time, it was hugely radical, hugely radical. And maybe two or three astronomers in Europe were on his side against hundreds of who were opposed to him. But he was right. And in a way, I mean, you could say he falls within a very interesting tradition that we referenced in Psalm 19 and mm -hmm. this, this kind of cosmic vision of God's handiwork within creation and the psalmist looking up in the heavens and seeing the same thing Kepler saw, not having quite the mathematical tools to prove right. it, right. but the poetry to sing it right. and declare it. In fact, you, you referenced earlier the, the six-day creation story in Genesis 1. We call it the, the first creation story because there are two. But the first creation story, it's important to remember, it's poetry. Yeah. And poetry by its nature is metaphorical and is, is declaring the glory of God within creation and the handiwork of, of what God is doing. But the details are... It's not a scientific treatise. It's not a scientific treatise. It's not what you would have seen if you'd had a video camera there. Yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, you get the feeling the writers know it. I don't... They, yeah. they, they're aware yeah. of the no, mysteries out there yeah. that, that they can't prove, but they're clear this is the work of God's yeah. hands. And I would also say, without getting into detail, too many details, that the writers of... The writer of... of uh, or writers of Genesis 1 were incredibly perceptive observers of the world around them. They have a lot of yeah. details in there um, that I think indicate that somebody was really paying attention yeah. to the created world around them. Yeah. yeah. Well, one final thing. Uh, the title of your, your mm -hmm. book that I said was my favorite, yeah. Love in Quasars. Love is an important word. Yeah. Because you, you have a great conclusion that has to do with evolution. And, and you go into a good, good bit of detail in the incredibly random way 
these atomic particles are brought together in shaping each one of us. And yet within that randomness, there's the power of Creativity, love. yeah. The creativity of God and, and, and God's love that there is no explanation for. And physically speaking, no reason for. Right. I'd like to leave you with this idea. There's this story that most of you probably know about this lawyer who came up to Jesus and asked Jesus, uh, Rabbi, what is the most, what is the greatest commandment? Right? You know what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your soul, all your heart, and all your mind. And then the second and so forth. But we, I've never heard too many, I don't hear too many pastors or too many people in churches saying, hold on a minute, what does this mean to love God with your mind? Well, well one of them has. What, 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 was, was that? One of them has. Well, That's why you're oh, here. Oh, I, I know you have. Yeah, give me a break. Uh, I'm not, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying, it's not personal. It's, other it's not personal. <laughs> All I'm saying is that it's often overlooked what that means to love God with your mind. Galileo said that God did not intend us to forego the use of the mind he has given us. He's given us the capacity for reason, for asking questions, for answering questions, for wondering. Why would God give us this capacity if he did not intend us to use it? So the intellectual love of God is, is love. You don't think about love often that way. But to pay attention to creation, whether you're a scientist at NASA or whether you're looking out in the backyard at the birds in your bird feeder, to pay attention to creation and to ask questions and to look for answers and to be curious, to me, is a perfect example of the intellectual love of God. It is love. <laughs> And I want to end with that, to ask questions and to investigate and to do science is to practice the intellectual love of God. I'm so thankful for you and thankful for your, You're welcome. your gifts. And I want to say my mother is a group, a Paul Wallace groupie. <laughs> and my mother reads Nurturing Faith regularly and not long ago, she called me up and she goes, where is Paul Wallace's article? And for some reason they had changed the page that it was yeah, on. It wasn't, it wasn't the last wasn't one. The last thing and she was in a panic. Like, <laughs> what, what am I going to do? <laughs> My mother, uh, some of you may have noticed, she composes hymns. And earlier she was the, the author of the lyrics of the previous hymn. But the hymn we're going to sing now is our closing hymn my mother wrote about the glories of creation. And she was all excited to know that awesome. this was going to be happening today and that her hymn could be used as a celebration of the elegance of faith and science. Bless you, Paul Wallace. Thanks, Thanks for David. Being with us. Thank you.